This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hello, happy Wednesday. Welcome back to The Hash. I'm Will Foxley, joined today by Christy Harkin and Adam B. Levine. Christy, you got the first story. Talking about Ethereum, what's up? Yeah, I'm talking about Ethereum again. I feel like every time I come on the show, I'm talking about Ethereum again. So something happened really, you know, minimally, incrementally nice, let's say, on Ethereum uh, yesterday. It was supposed to be today, but it was yesterday. Things kind of sped up in the block finding thing, which apparently is a thing. So that happened. So what we have right now is a shadow fork. This is the 10th shadow fork that has happened. Now, what's a shadow fork? It's basically a minor fork uh, on a test net that tests out not the whole merge, but it tests out a couple of releases or little features that are going to happen when the merge actually happens. So for people who've been following along, the merge is coming in September, and that's when Ethereum is going to shift to proof of stake from its proof of work consensus algorithm. And this has been a very big deal and everyone's getting super excited. There's only one test net, one full test net merge, Gourley, which is supposed to happen on August 10th. Let's see what date it actually happens, but that's projected. If all goes well, the merge is going to happen in September. All these little shadow forks are testing out smaller bits. In this case, this is actually a test of a test. They're testing out releases that are actually going to happen on the Gurley test network in August. So, so far, everything's been fine. No major glitches. And every time now that we take a little step closer to the merge, everything gets a little more exciting. I believe that Ethereum is up something like 8% already today. I doubt it's on this news because I don't know that anybody actually noticed it happened, but it did. So anyway, yeah. That's what's going down with Ethereum. Will, you you know a lot about Ethereum still, probably? Probably. I, th- I think I do. Uh, yeah, this is an interesting <laughs> story because of what's happening with the transition in September, right? We've seen a lot of these incremental test nets over the last year or so, last 12 months or so. And for good reason, right? This is one of the largest changes to any running blockchain out there. And it's Ethereum. It's where a lot of the ecosystems live on top of, right? A lot of the NFT ecosystems, a lot of the stablecoin networks, a lot of just the DeFi projects, they all live on top of Ethereum. So if you mess this up, then all those things suffer along with it. So you really need to make sure that everything is squeaky clean and working. So good on them for doing that as well. Just going into September, I'm curious to see what happens. Chrissy, you mentioned the price. Of course, we're not really giving price predictions on here, but it has been interesting to see this pump into the merge. A lot of people were talking about that trade actually for about in the last 12 to six months that there could be possible pump in the price of Ethereum against other tokens because of this huge transition. This transition has been talked about quite literally since the beginning of Ethereum about moving from proof of work, proof of stake. It's been delayed for years upon years. And now that we're here, I think the market might be rewarding the developers and anyone else who's holding Ethereum during that time for putting up with all, uh, all the stuff going on in between. At the same time, it could just be like a fake rally going into a bear market. Those things happen all the time. I'm not quite sure. Adam, I want to throw it over to you. Yeah, my impression is that it's going to get worse before it gets better, but I'd be happy to be wrong. With regards to sort of the Ethereum move, uh, not, you know, outside of price, but as far as like the philosophy of what they're doing, you know, as far as the actual kind of reality of what they're doing with this upgrade, I think it's an incredibly important one. And it's not just important for Ethereum. 
you know, you look back at sort of the history of cryptocurrencies and you see over and over and over again, the different projects, notably Bitcoin and Ethereum, have at different times done things that have been incredibly influential for the rest of the market and have really sort of defined what people are going to be focusing on for, in many cases, years to come. That was Bitcoin very, very early on, but pretty quickly it became much more conservative and kind of waved away the role that it had as sort of the technological development leader and really started to focus in on just pure security as much as possible, pure security and decentralization. Now, Ethereum has never taken that path. Ethereum took the other path and it said, hey, we have these incredible ambitions that currently aren't yet met or possible within the world of decentralized technology, and we're not going to wait for somebody else to invent them. We're going to do it. We're going to figure out how to do it. And that's kind of the position that they find themselves in today is that this is very important for Ethereum because it represents a lot of work and a lot of effort and a lot of narrative also that's come before. But it also is incredibly important for projects outside of Ethereum because whatever happens here will be incredibly influential. And if they do manage to make this jump from proof of work to proof of stake without having any sort of significant collapses or problems or additional chains, that will become the best practice for other blockchains that find themselves in similar situations. And hopefully we'll help, you know, we'll help these projects to really kind of mature. So having watched the space for as long as I think many of us have, we're pretty skeptical about this date actually being the real, real, real date this time, because we've heard this a lot of times before, but it would be great if it was. And, you know, I, I think that uh, certainly I am uh, wishing all of them the best of luck as that transition goes, because it is audacious. <laughs> and I get a lot of respect for that. And to be fair, that has been that idea of the innovation of not waiting, not waiting around for Bitcoin to do the things. I mean, Bitcoin is peer-to-peer -peer payments. It is, as you say, it's focused on security. And yeah, Ethereum and its other compatriots have not focused quite so heavily on security for better, for worse. But that was Vitalik's whole MO at the beginning was, I don't want to wait for Bitcoin to be able to do these things. I'm going to build something and do those things now and do them quickly and do them without waiting around. On the other hand, I think it also has shown because it has been such a long time. I mean, this is years and years past when it was originally projected to happen, this shift to proof of stake. But it does show the importance of going slowly and being careful and not just rushing things through and testing things out as much as possible, which is kind of Bitcoiny too. I think the thing that it, it says to me most importantly is that when you're looking at these projects, we don't know how to do a lot of this stuff, right? Like I remember going back to the very early days of Bitcoin, right? When we were talking about the Lightning Network as a means to scale the network. And there were expectations that this would be relatively, you know, hey, we're going to develop this thing and then it'll be ready. But when there are problems that we don't know how to solve, then you can predict that an answer exists for those problems, but you can't predict when they're going to be solved. And I think that's the problem that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a lot of other projects, frankly, have run into as well. It's just like, it's hard to solve hard problems, and it's harder to predict when those are going to be solved. But moving on, Will, you've got the next story. That's right. We're talking about Coinbase again. We talked about them yesterday with the SEC investigation to them listing uh, quasi-securities or possibly securities. And then the week prior, we talked about them with insider trading. Now we're talking about them with Kathy Wood's innovation funds dumping 1.4 million of their stock. Coinstock is down a little bit yesterday, but it's back up today. It's trading around 50 bucks a share or so. Why is this important? Well, Kathy Wood's ARK innovation fund is basically seen as like the leading tech indicator for any sort of ETF product that someone wants to put in their basket for uh, finances going forward. And they chose to pull out of this after only investing in it a few months back. I think their exposure to Coinbase is almost 
uh, negligible, if at all, at this point. And it used to be one of their largest holdings. Uh, so it's interesting to see them have an about face after just purchasing a lot of the stock only a few months ago. Uh, again, this comes after a few bad headlines for Coinbase with insider trading the week prior, and then this week with the SEC investigation into them. Adam, I want to throw this one over to you. Kathy Wood is obviously like a very prominent person within fintech and within fintech investing. People really follow along with what her fund is doing. And her dumping the Coinbase stock does not look great for Coin, the stock itself. Yeah, I think that you can say a lot of things about Coinbase. And I think two things you can say about this are, one, they timed their release of the stock very, very, very well. <laughs> and, and two, that since they released it and since they had sort of, you know, hopefully some people within the company were able to get some, you know, exit out of it. But outside of that, they performed not very well. And it seems like things are going to get worse before they get better. Now, I remember when Coinbase was preparing to list, we did have uh, traditional market observers who were saying, hey, this is about 90% overpriced uh, relative to you know, what the market would typically ex expect as something like this commodifies. So this isn't you know, a huge surprise, I think, certainly to some people in the markets. But a lot of people always kind of think, you know, we have this uh, thing called recency bias, right? We think the thing that's been happening recently is going to continue to happen because it's been happening recently. And as we see with crypto markets, that tends to smack you upside the head every couple of years, no matter whether you've been here before or not. So <laughs> that's kind of the read on all of this. I think the other thing about Coinbase that's more kind of structural is, you know, they are a regulated company in the United States. And the United States has some pretty serious rules about regulation that, that really kind of control. And, you know, as we see what the SEC continues to do and whether they really do say that, hey, most of the stuff that's trading on, on uh, Coinbase is actually a security. That could cause an even bigger problem. But outside of that, just compare what they have to do in terms of compliance and in terms of all of the hoops they got to jump through compared to their biggest competitor out there, Binance, right? Binance doesn't operate in the United States and they don't operate in the United States because of those rules. And so as a result, Coinbase has put itself into a pretty significant, you know, it's, it's an advantageous position for them because they're one of the biggest publicly traded crypto exchanges. But at the same time, that has come at a significant cost to them uh, and really to any company that wants to operate inside the United States in a way that's compatible with these laws. So those are kind of the challenges that I see in front of them. Christy, what do you think? Well, far be it for me to second guess Kathy Wood. I'm not a, a markets person at all. I did sort of cock my head a little to the side and go, hmm, that seems to go against the whole buy low, sell high kind of thing. And if you look at the performance of of her fund over the last year, it's down like 44%. So I'm not entirely sure that I am 100% on board with this dumping. And I'm not sure that it makes a lot of sense. I mean, but again, I'm not an investor. I'm not a trader. I don't know that this SEC thing is going to necessarily go anywhere bad for Coinbase. I think that this is them just flexing their muscle and saying, we're going to regulate you guys by not by guidance, but by enforcement. And I think that they're going to find that they have possibly bitten off a little more than they can chew when it, it comes to diving into this. But again, I'm not a trader. I don't know. Will? Yeah. The one uh, point I want to bring a story over to actually is a nice tweet from Scott Lewis, who's a DeFi developer out there. He said, a story you won't hear, competitors listed everything and took Coinbase's market share. Coinbase tried to play by the rules, but SEC refused to collaborate and continued its policy of non-enforcement against gray zone players. Coinbase's only viable option was to force the issue. And I think that's a pretty intelligent insight into the whole situation because it is very reflective of what has happened for Coinbase over the last three years. 
basically since the rise of Binance, right? Where Binance started skirting regulations, started hopping from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, basically paying and playing wherever it could for as long as it could before going to the next area. And they've grown in market share to a huge size. I mean, Coinbase used to be the biggest in the room. And now Binance is not doesn't necessarily dwarf Coinbase, but they're larger by market volume. Uh, and they have a lot more tokens on their exchange and a lot more people use Binance worldwide. Coinbase hasn't had that option, right? Because they chose to go very conservative, stick with SEC guidance or as best as they could guess SEC guidance was. And now they've suffered for it, right? Uh, Adam, I do want to throw it back to your point, though, about the stock price here. Like, It's very easy for us to jump on the show one morning and say, like, oh, your stock is down. Well, the real look at the situation, right? The chart goes down for a little bit, but they timed it really well and they got a nice exit. And that's the whole point for a company going public. So the early players who spent years of their life building this thing could exit with some money and move on to the next project. So I don't think just looking at this one little spotlight is like necessarily worthy of anything at this point. Uh, it is interesting to see like a confluence of all these events, however. Adam, I'll throw it to you for our last story. Yeah. So before we go into that last story, uh, Christy, I think that actually when we're talking about like the SEC and we're talking about uh, Coinbase, I actually think that they're in a worse situation because the SEC has few companies that they can really go after that are already in that regulated publicly traded arena. So Coinbase is kind of it. So that means on the one side, if there's going to be love coming from Wall Street, then they're going to be the company that gets it. On the other side, if there's going to be, you know, like a monkey with a hammer hitting them in the head from the SEC, that's going to be coming to them as well. Is it really the only target? But anyways, in our final story of today, Web3 domain issuer Unstoppable Domains announced $65 million in new investments from companies including Pantera Capital, Alchemy Ventures, Polygon, Boost VC, and a laundry list of other VC names. The $65 million only cost the company some 6.5% thanks to the billion-dollar valuation they landed, which is not bad for a company that's only been in the game since 2018. I wanted to talk about this story today because, honestly, domain names on the internet, and more importantly, tokenizing domain names on the internet, has always struck me as an area of immense opportunity. There's really a lot of problems in that industry traditionally. And it's pretty neat seeing it play out in front of us. Christy, I want to toss this one to you to get started. You know, is this momentum, you know, coming out of the bull market or you think there's something here? I think that this is something that has been bubbling under the surface really in the industry for quite a long time. Way back in early Bitcoin days, there was already somebody there. I can't even remember, Adam, you might remember who, but uh, Name coin. where, oh, I think it was, I can't remember now. The name escapes me, but they, they were trying to, I remember claiming a domain name for myself, a Bitcoin name, a Bitcoin domain name. And then it sort of petered out. This is something that keeps happening simply because nobody wants to deal with those great big long strings of addresses. They're annoying. They don't mean anything. We're using QR codes, which have their own problems built into them security wise. So I think that any company that is going to tackle this problem is going to find that there are going to be willing participants and supporters who want the same things that they do. I know that ENS, uh, Ethereum Name Service, their token has been going up uh, lately, and there's been interest in what's been going on with them over the last little while as well. And I think that user experience is always, always going to be an important area of development in no matter what blockchain platform you're talking about. Do you remember, Adam? Let's well, so it was Namecoin in the very early days on Bitcoin. I don't remember who was yeah. behind it, but Namecoin was the protocol, I'm pretty sure. So what's funny to me about your response there is that 
you're responding to it and thinking about this purely from like a crypto side. And I almost entirely think about this from a, from like a web domain side, right? Like that's the pain point for me. You know, like you try to transfer a domain name to somebody, you got to use escrow providers because they're not tokenized. Whereas if you've got something like this, you can use a smart contract to just do the trade. There's a lot of different things that can kind of come out about that. And one of the other things that's been pretty cool about how Unstoppable Domains has done this is that typically when you get a domain name, you buy it on a per year basis and there's a cost associated with that and different domain providers control those different types of things. What they are actually doing is they just, it's a one-time purchase, but their costs are really bizarrely spread. So if you, you know, like have an existing brand, then they tend to actually be already holding that brand for you and you can just get it for them for the registration fee. But if you want Bitcoin.com or something like, or Bitcoin dot, you know, whatever their domain extension is, then they'll have, you know, like that set for $25,000. And as far as I can tell, that's both an anti-spam mechanism and also how the company is making money. So I think that that also supported their, you know, I mean, as the popularity is growing, the likelihood that those names are going to get snapped up by somebody, I think goes up too, which has some interesting revenue kind of implications. Will, I don't want to leave you out of this topic. You know, I know you've been watching this one for a long time, Sue. What do you think? Yeah, actually taking it from a different perspective. I wish Jen was on the show because we were talking yesterday about big raises and if there'd be continued big raises within the space. And this isn't a huge raise, but it is decent size. And then the valuation is also pretty large, much larger than I would expect for this point in the cycle. $1 billion valuation is pretty big. We haven't seen one of those probably in a few weeks to a few months at this point. And that's because a lot of these projects are tied to tokens and token valuations have gone down 80% plus. So Interesting to see that uh, continue. That's why I told her yesterday too. I said, we're going to see a few more of these. I do think we're going to generally stop seeing billion-dollar unicorn statuses for most crypto applications quite a while. And we'll probably see smaller funding rounds as well. But that's my last take for it. But I think we can also leave the show there for the day. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching to the hash. I'm Will Foxley. That's Christy Harkin. Adam B. Levine, as always. If you are listening, the hash for your ears, we got a podcast network you can check out. Lots of other shows on there as well, but you got to listen to the hash. We're here daily. For all of us at Coindesk, thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, the hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.